Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Thank you, Colin. We are finishing up the book of Ruth this morning, so if you'll be finding Ruth, we will be looking at the fourth chapter today of this uh, little book Uh, and finishing it up. You know, when you accomplish something um, of significance, there's usually a time, a brief time perhaps, for a few moments to sit back and revel in the satisfaction of a job well done. It might be something as commonplace as cutting the grass. And you sit back and look at how beautiful it is, at least for the next couple of days. Or it might be a big project at work or around the house, the planning and execution of that project finally culminating in its completion, giving you just a few moments to catch your breath and rest in what you've done before, of course, some other project gets your attention. In a slightly different way, it's like reading novels or watching movies, it's that moment in the story when everything comes together, that aha moment where you begin to piece all the puzzles of the story together and finally come to terms with what has been taken, taken place. Now, that's why I don't like movies or books that don't do this. I don't like them when they leave me hanging at the end of the story or they're so complicated that I can't understand what's going on. And sadly, this happens more times than I care to admit. Though I don't think it's always my fault. Sometimes I think it's the writer or the producer. Now, we, of course, have been looking at the ancient story of Ruth. And I have said repeatedly that we are at a slight disadvantage because we already know the basics of the story and so we know how it ends. And as a result, It is tempting for us to quickly read over the tension, the emotions, and the tragedy that the characters in our story face. After all, we know that they lived happily ever after, so what does it really matter if they have a few trials along the way? No sense shedding tears or feeling empathy if everything turns out okay eventually. And so we've had to work harder to put ourselves in their shoes, to wrestle with what they are dealing with in the moment, a a God who is seemingly silent, a God who is actively working against them, at least that's what they believe, to wonder or even fall into despair as to whether their future or ours is going to be bleak or bright. This story, like our own lives, has had twists and turns along the way, surprise diversions and revelations that we did not see coming. In fact, we are going to see today that there is much more going on in this drama than even the characters involved in the story knew. While they were wondering if God was at work, they had no idea that God was not only at work, but God was doing something far beyond any of them could ever imagine. This truly is a story with an ending that no one saw coming, an ending with ramifications that still go on even in our lives, though we are separated by thousands of years. The story of Ruth is not primarily a story of loss and love. 
It is not primarily a model of how to be committed to your spouse or committed to your in-laws. These elements are present, no doubt, but if that's all we see, then we've missed the forest for the trees. Because as we've said throughout, this is a story about God's said, God's covenant love or faithfulness and loyalty to his people, something we've seen that has gone back and forth. We saw it first in Ruth toward Naomi, and then we saw it between Boaz toward Ruth and Naomi, and ultimately we are going to see it with Ruth to Boaz as well. All of which is an expression of God's has said for his people. Because again, this is not primarily about Ruth and Boaz. This is primarily about God's love for us, his people. Now, we've also said that this is a story about the kinsman redeemer. That is the other key term in this book. The closest relative whose charge is to redeem the widow. And we're going to see that that takes place today. We ended last week with Boaz promising Ruth that there will be a redeemer. But who will that redeemer be? Will it be Boaz who seems not only ready but more than willing to do so? Or will it be this unnamed closer relative? And are these potential redeemers merely pictures of a greater redemption? Well, we're going, to find out about, we're going to find out about all of that today, because today we talk about redemption accomplished. In chapter 3, redemption was promised. Boaz said, Ruth, when the morning comes, I'm going to handle this. In chapter 4, we see redemption accomplished. Now, we're going to read again, section by section. This is my attempt at only looking at a part of the story so that we don't know all of the other details, even though I know we already know it. That's why I've been reading section by section. And so we're going to start with the first six verses as we see Boaz redeems the land. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. And so Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So we start this morning, we're going to see four different redemptions in this story, but we start with Boaz redeeming the land. Now this is a new twist for us. Because we've heard nothing about any land previously, 
But it is apparent that Naomi owns a piece of land from Elimelech, her husband. It has been lying there for a decade. Surely somebody has been farming it over those 10 years, whether legally or not. But this land now needs to be sold by Naomi in order to provide for her and Ruth. But let's back up just a moment. Boaz is a man of his word. So the night before, he told Ruth that in the morning light, he would take care of this matter of the closer relative for redemption. And so he goes to the city gates where legal gatherings took place. It would have been much like our courthouse today, the place that people gathered in order to settle uh, lawful matters, a place of doing business. Now, it just ha so happens that the closer relative walks by. And again, we know that coincidences in this book are no coincidences at all. And so it's not just by happenstance that this man comes by. I find it interesting that in a book filled with names and names that have significance, that this man is not named at all. In fact, when Boaz says to him, turn aside, friend, the literal rendering is something like this, Mr. So-and-so. He doesn't even call him by name. He just says, turn aside, Mr. So-and-so. We also know, of course, that there are witnesses present. Ten men were necessary in order to be witnesses to whatever the events that transpired are going to be. And while this isn't a trial per se, there is a property issue at stake, so witnesses were necessary. So very wisely and carefully, Boaz presents the opportunity to this man to acquire or buy the land. Remember, this is one of the responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer to repurchase the land so that it could be kept in the family. If not, the land would be returned to the family in the year of Jubilee, which was every 50 years. Again, this is all because the land was given by God to his people, and God expected the land to stay within the family. And so this man agrees to buy the land. And when he does so, Boaz tells him the rest of the agreement. If you buy the land... You also get Ruth, the Moabite, and Naomi, and the responsibility of perpetuating the, perpetuating the name of Elimelech through a son. Now this great deal that this unnamed man has readily agreed to is no longer a great deal. Now it is a economic liability. You see, he would have to purchase the land and provide for Naomi in her old age. He would have to father a child through Ruth. He would have to raise that son until that son was of age, bearing the cost of all of that. And then when the son was of age, the land would be his to keep the family name of Elimelech alive, and it would not go to this man's own children. Now, we know how expensive it is to raise children today. Most of us, however, do so gladly out of love. I have been bragging of recent days to some of you that my children are both about to be off of my payroll, and I am indeed happy about that. Lauren starts a new job next week teaching school. Jacob will be looking for a job when he returns from Turkey a week from today, and hopefully they will all be off of my payroll. At least I know I will no longer be writing checks to the University of Tennessee. Which means, in essence, I'm about to get a large raise without you even giving it to me. 
because my expenses are going to go significantly down. And yet, as I've been bragging about that, some of you have said things like, you know, they never really leave. They're always in some way on your payroll, and I'm sure you're probably right about that. But this unnamed man counts the cost, and the math just simply doesn't add up. And so he declines to be the kinsman redeemer, which is a reminder that it is costly to redeem. And we're going to talk about that more next week. And the story doesn't necessarily condemn the man for coming to this conclusion. This man does what is ordinary. He is weighing the best thing for him and his family financially. But at the same time, he certainly is not showing his head as Boaz will do. His desire is to protect his name, his family, and his own inheritance. And that desire for the preservation of his name relegates him to being unnamed throughout all of history. You see, because Boaz showed said, we are still talking about Boaz. These thousands of years later, we still know his name because of what he did. All of which reminds us that God's math doesn't always add up. Now, by that, I do not mean that two plus two equals whatever you want it to mean. What I mean by that is sometimes generosity is the pathway to blessing. Boaz chooses that path, showing generosity and has said to Ruth and Naomi without regard for his own future. He redeems the land at a cost to himself simply because it was the right thing to do. This unnamed man who is only concerned about his own gain or loss, his own family financial consideration, this unnamed man whom we can hear saying, what's in it for me? What is it going to cost me? The same way many still think today. You see, Boaz is concerned about the things of God, and that includes redemption. Well, let's move to our second point because this story is not about real estate laws. It's about people. And so we need to see, secondly, that Boaz redeems the widows, verses 7 through 12. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman." So secondly, Boaz not only redeems the land, but more importantly, Boaz is going to redeem these two widows. Now it begins with a rather strange sandal ceremony, which of course is foreign to us, 
And actually, it appears to be foreign to the audience to which this book was first written. I say that because they explain the uh, ceremony. This is actually one of the pieces in this story that scholars use to date the writing of this book. Because again, this ceremony no longer seems to take place in Israel. And so they're referring back to a time in which it did. At any rate, it is somehow symbolic of the transference of the legal obligations. Perhaps it verified the transaction, much like we might do today with a notary public. And in an oral society, witnesses certainly would have been necessary. When people largely could not read or write, these witnesses would stand an important testimony that in the future, if there were any disagreements over whatever took place, that they would be witnesses. Now, of course, we've known this was coming. Even if we didn't know the end of the story, you had to know that Boaz was going to redeem Ruth and Naomi. And I keep saying both widows, and this point is plural, because he is indeed redeeming both of them. He is taking care of the older woman while taking Ruth, the younger woman, as his wife. He is fulfilling all of the responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer. And now we also realize that there are other people at the city gate, not just the 10 elders who are witnesses to this transaction, but we know that there are others there as well. And they begin to rejoice in this reversal of fortune and pronounce blessings on the couple. Similar to a toast that we might give at a wedding, when someone stands up and pronounces blessings on the newly married couple and talks about their future, that's what is taking place here. And it is a threefold statement of blessing. First, they say that they desire for Ruth to be compared favorably to Rachel and Leah, which is a phenomenal statement if you know your Old Testament history. Rachel and Leah were sisters, wives of Jacob. They were the matriarchs of Israel. Together, they bore eight of the 12 sons of Jacob that became the 12 tribes. Their two servants bore to each as well. Rachel, of course, was the favored wife who for many years was barren, but eventually was able to bear Joseph and Benjamin. Leah had six sons, including Judah, who is the namesake of the tribe that we are talking about. And again, I don't want to pass over this without reminding you that Ruth was a Moabite woman. And again, we've talked several times about the animosity between Moab and Israel. And yet now these ladies in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah of Israel are declaring their blessing upon Ruth that she might take her place among the matriarchs of Israel. That is a phenomenal reversal for a woman who just several months previous to this came into town as nothing. Remember, Naomi said, I've left full and I've come back empty. I have nothing. That was, her, uh, that was her statement about Ruth, in essence. And now these ladies are saying they want Ruth to be right up there with Rachel and Leah. The second blessing is toward Boaz and refers to his actions and name. Ephrathath is the ancient name of Bethlehem, so there's not two locations here. It's two names for the same place. We've already seen that Boaz is referred to as a worthy man, and now he is urged to continue acting in this manner, and that his name and reputation will continue to be known throughout the region. Well, did that happen? 
Well, again, here we are thousands of years later, thousands of miles removed from Bethlehem, and we are still talking about the name and the reputation and the character of a man named Boaz. I think that blessing did indeed come true. The third part of this blessing is perhaps the most startling, at least as far as the example that was given. The idea is easy enough to follow. They want this couple's ancestry to be large, somewhat like was promised to Abraham with descendants as many, of the star, as, many as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. But the example that they use is a bit odd. Even if it's true, I mean, the house of Perez did indeed grow large and had to be divided. But it's the background to this that is somewhat strange. Perez and Zerah were the twin sons of Tamar. Though Perez, the family became larger, and that's why he's the only one referenced here. You can find this story in Genesis chapter 38 if you want to read it about it this afternoon, but it's about as twisted as those afternoon stories you watch on television, just for the noise in the house. I used to watch some of those in college. And I'm confident if I started back watching those, I could still pick up the story, even though many years have transpired. Tamar was married to Judah's oldest son, but the Bible tells us that he was a wicked man and God killed him. And so again, because of the Liverite laws, Judah's second son was to marry Tamar, and he did. And I'll try to be delicate in some of the things I say, and you can read the details yourself. Judah's second son wanted the privileges of marriage without the responsibility. In other words, he married Tamar but refused to bear a son for his brother's name. So God killed him as well. Judah had a third son, but at this point he fears for his third son given that the first two have died. And so he tells Tamar that when the third son is of age, he will give him to her in marriage. But when that age comes, he does not. And so when Tamar realizes that he's not going to follow through on this, she dresses up like a lady of the evening, if you catch my reference, and tricks her father-in-law into a one-night relationship. Now, I'm not trying to imply that he's not to blame, for he later in the story says that she was more righteous than he was because he failed to give her the third son. But at any rate, she becomes pregnant from this immoral evening and bore the twin sons, Perez and Zerah. So Perez becomes the main ancestor from the tribe of Judah. Again, the very tribe that we are examining here in this story in Bethlehem and the tribe from which Jesus came. Remember, Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And we can also find Perez's name in the genealogies that both Matthew and Luke begin their Gospels with. The son born of an incestuous and immoral relationship numbered among the prominent ancestors of Jesus. Hang on to that, and we'll talk more about it soon. For now, we need to move on to another Redeemer. Remember, I promised you at the beginning that there's more going on in this story than even the characters in the story know. So let's look at verses 13 through 17, and now we're going to see Obed redeems Israel. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. 
And then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Obed is a redeemer of Israel. Now, it doesn't surprise us to learn that this newlywed couple is expecting a son. We've got quite a few expecting mothers around here, and it's always exciting, especially when it is the first one to be around these soon-to-be new mothers. But, you know, sometimes we just assume that this is the natural progression of a relationship. You get married, and then in a few months or a few years, you start announcing that you are pregnant. And if that's not your progression, then people are going to ask you about it. When are you going to have a baby? Your family and friends are going to start pastoring you because we just assume that's what's going to happen. But this story reminds us once again that every conception is a work of God. He is the one who opens and closes the womb. Remember, Ruth was married to Malon. And by the way, that's the first time we knew that. We didn't know in chapter one which of the two sons was her husband, but here we find out that she was married to Malon. We don't know exactly how long they were married, but it was years. Again, they were in the land of Moab for 10 years, and yet she had not conceived a child. So in verse 13, it states that the Lord gave her conception. It is the second time in this book that an action is expressly said to be from God. In chapter 2, he gave the people food again. The famine was over in Bethlehem. And here in chapter 4, he gives Ruth a son. Notice also that this blessing is spoken to Naomi, even though it is Ruth who is going to bear the son. Again, this goes back to what we talked about previously, that Ruth is doing all of this on behalf of Naomi. She is demonstrating said to her mother-in-law. It is the name and the lineage of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband, that Ruth is seeking to carry on with this promised son. Why, even the women in town say a son has been born to Naomi, in spite of the fact that Ruth is the one bearing the child. Because of this, Ruth is proclaimed to be better than seven sons. You remember last week I said that the number seven is the number of completion, so seven sons was the ideal in Israel. And once again, what a tremendous reversal in such a short period of time. It's only been a few months previously that Naomi came home empty-handed, and now Ruth is said to her to be better than seven sons. High praise indeed. But how can this baby lying on the lap of Naomi be said to redeem Israel? I get that we can say he is the product of Ruth and Naomi being redeemed, But how can he himself be a redeemer? Well, even as we have seen and will see next week that Boaz is a type of Christ, Obed is also a type of Christ. His name means servant. Remember I told you this is a book filled with names that have meaning. His name means servant. And we know that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. 
But more significantly, Obed continues the promise of the covenant given so many years before of the seed that would come and crush the serpent. He continues the messianic line that runs through David, Israel's greatest king, and concludes with Jesus, our ultimate king. You may have noticed that verse 17 ends with the name David. When we finish the last few verses in just a moment, you're going to see that the last word in this book is the name David, and that is not an accident. He is going to be instrumental in the next stage of Israel's history, which again is why this story is much deeper than a a love between Boaz and Ruth. Remember, this was during the time of the judges, chapter 1 and verse 1. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we said on that first week that what Israel desperately needed was a king. And long before they asked God for one, God was preparing a way through this son named Obed whose family lineage would one day include David. Now do keep in mind that these genealogies are selective. That is, generations are skipped, and that's not an error. Calling someone a father or a son in that culture was not limited to the immediate father or son. It's a word that basically meant ancestor or descendant. But regardless, Obed is a promise that the king is on the way a king that will lead Israel out of this dark and troublesome period of their history. Which leads us then to the ultimate king and the point of this story that really does matter to us. And we have another redeemer. Jesus redeems us. Let's finish the book. Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amenadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. I realize that's an odd way to end this story. We're accustomed to genealogies at the beginning of books, or in some cases in the Old Testament books throughout the book, but it certainly seems odd to end this love story with a genealogy, but keep in mind what we said the major purpose of writing this book was to verify the history, the lineage, and therefore ultimately the right to rule and reign for King David. These same names can be found in Matthew and Luke's genealogy that lead us to Jesus. Because ultimately, the book of Ruth is about the preservation of the messianic line. As promised long ago, There would come a Messiah, and that Messiah is Jesus, and he will redeem his people from their sins, which is why these New Testament gospels begin as they do, showing us that Jesus is that Messiah who has a right to reign and rule because he is the promised son of David. But when you think about it, there are some odd entries in these genealogies. Tamar, I mean, we've already talked about her story just a bit. The deception that led to the birth of Perez. Rahab is there in the genealogy. Again, if you know anything about her, her character was not exactly above reproach. She was a member of what some call the oldest profession before the spies came to her city. And then, of course, there is Ruth, a Moabite grafted into the people of Israel through the story we've been studying. 
Don't we need to ask the question, why in the lineage of Jesus Christ, our Savior, would these kinds of people be included? Three Gentile women, two of which come from very questionable backgrounds. Perez, who features prominently in this last chapter of Ruth, born from an immoral situation. Why are their names there? Because Jesus came to save sinners just like them and just like us. He came to redeem his people, all of whom are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. And that's why he and he alone can accomplish redemption. Your redemption is not a joint effort between you and Jesus. He has completed it, which is why he cried out on the cross, Tetelestai, it is finished. The debt is paid in full. And as a result, we find rest in Christ. Ruth longed for rest and security, and she found it in Boaz, who is a type or a picture of Christ. We long for rest and security and often strive to find it through our own effort or worldly means, neither of which is the right place. And even as we've already sung this morning, the only place to find it is in Christ and in Christ alone because he is the only one who has accomplished redemption for us on Christ, giving us true rest. Which is why Jesus could say, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. His rest will calm our anxious and worried hearts in this life and will last for all eternity. We've seen this morning redemption accomplished in four different ways, but all three of the first really point to the fourth, the one that really matters to us, and that is Jesus redeems us. But I need to ask you a really important question in closing. Redemption has been accomplished by Christ. The question is, has it been applied to your life? Have you by faith trusted in Christ that he has provided redemption for your sins, leading to a reversal in your life, just as we saw these great reversals in our story, leading you to find rest and security in the only one who can truly provide it, and that is, again, in Christ and in Christ alone. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the redemption that has been accomplished through the work of Christ on Calvary. I pray now that you would help us to examine our own lives to see whether that redemption has been applied personally to us. Have we by faith trusted in the finished work of Christ on Calvary and therefore we are redeemed for all eternity? Or are we still striving to find rest and security in our own efforts? May each of us here this morning find our rest in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.